right, so got my friend Austin Harris on the line today. What's going on, man? Hey, what's going on, Cameron? So, where do you want to start? Man, I feel like lately I've been so I've been watching this uh, new show on. I guess it was on HBO, and it's it's been out for a little while now. Uh, it's called Yellowstone. And so, um, you know, I started watching that, and it moved over. I guess Peacock now owns it, and so I've been watching it uh, for free on there. So if you got Xfinity, you get uh, you get Peacock, and you can watch all of those shows, including The Office, that's now on there. Um, but Yellowstone's on there, and there's three seasons. And I think that, like, in watching this show, I think it's just created such a interest in Native American culture and just like land ownership throughout the United States. And what I mean by that is really just geared towards public land ownership that's kind of created by federal government ownership um, and then private ownership, right? Like the people like you and me and other folks who, um, you know, aspire to buy some land in Texas and have a ranch and have that be generationally passed down to your family and stuff. And so family and friends, man. family and friends, and, family and yeah. friends. you know, something I would do with the land is like, yeah, obviously have my family, have my friends come, but you know, sustainability and just having that place where you can roam and do what you want and not have to live in like a cookie cutter suburb. Like I aspire to have that. And I get where you can connect land ownership with, well, you know, what happened to the Native Americans? Because if you're reading about it, they're like kind of the original landowners of 100%, America. yeah. And then you have the things that happen, like the Trail of Tears, which I should probably Google. But yeah, the Trail of Tears, and with all these people manifest destiny, 13 colonies happens out in the east, and then manifest destiny happens. Well, there's a gold rush in California. Let's head west. And that's where you get the story of Lewis and Clark and Sacagawea, right? Where they meet. And ultimately, we're just forcing these people west, west, mm, and then off yeah. the land. And you know what? we got to create a safe space for them, essentially. Right. So let's create a reservation. Yeah, modern-day reservation. And then what we've done is we've created these fucking reservations where, uh, uh, where we put the, native, the current Native Americans and we fuel them with alcohol and fucking casinos. And it's just so sad to see like how such a rich history and culture has been diminished like that. Absolutely, know? and it's it's wild too because um, you know I think that we don't necessarily see a whole lot of that culture unless you live in one of the states like Utah. you know Arizona, Arizona, Arizona <laughs> uh, Utah, Nevada. You know a lot of these states um, are really kind of the places where you're going to see most of that culture. And and recently I visited Arizona. One of my friends lives in Scottsdale. And, um, you know, it was the first time I really saw lots of reservations. And so I think, um, you know, kind of with it stemming from this show that I've been watching, I think that there's just been so much interest in, um, you know, how did we get to where we are now? And the show's called what? Yellowstone. Yellowstone. Yeah, and it's got Kevin Costner in it, and it's, it's a really great show. But I just think that one of the things that scares me is, um, you know, we're seeing – we're seeing an increase in land ownership by the federal government. And, um, you know, Cameron, if I could share a little percentage real quick, a couple things um, that I thought were pretty jarring. 60.2% um, of the land in the United States is privately owned. 
So obviously that means that 39.8% of the land in the U.S. is publicly owned, um, you know, and or uh, owned by the uh, federal government. And so we look at all of the different states and understanding a little bit more about, you know, why some of them tend to have more private land uh, ownership than, than federal. Um, and interestingly enough, an overwhelming majority, actually about 92% of the federally owned um, acres, acres are owned in 12 western states. So 28% of all of the land in the U.S. is actually owned by the federal government. And 92% of that 28% is, is owned, and it's really in 12 major states. Um, those, those are Nevada, Utah, Idaho, Alaska, Oregon, Wyoming, California, Arizona, Colorado, New Mexico. We have a lot um, of Native American history. Absolutely. And, and that's just, you know, two, that's, 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 you know, quite a few of the, uh, major places where a lot of the land is owned by, um, the federal government. And it just kind of makes you start to think a lot more about as young people, what your plans are for, you know, investing your money. And what are your goals? Because it seems to me that one of the one things that you can't buy more of is land. No, you can't. And uh, that's what really caught my eye um, <clears throat> is that, you know, you, you graduate college, you get a job, and everyone's like, put a lot of money in your 401k, put your money in your 401k, put all of it, max it out at the maximum amount you can put in a 401k in a year, I think is 18000 or 18500 maybe 19500 but something around there. Right. And they're saying, put all your money in that. Well, the caveat with that is if I put my money in there, I can't take it out until I'm 60 or 59 and a half, whatever. Or it's taxed, right? touch that money. I get there's benefits to having a 401k, but if I put all my freaking candy in one, you know, basket, how, you know, and I, and something good comes up, a good opportunity to buy some land, which I think is becoming increasingly valuable yeah. because as population increases, people need land. Like at all this population dense area of California, guess where they're moving? Texas. Texas, and yeah. Austin, Hill Country's blowing up. So it's made me really be interested in, in grabbing some of that, you know, Mother Nature's pie before it gets snagged. And I think it's a, it's a super great point you just brought up with the fact that we're seeing such a change um, here in Texas, right? Um, you know, I've lived here my whole life, and Cameron, I know you have too. And what's, what's so interesting is that we're seeing a shift from California um, to Texas for a lot of major businesses, um, you know, giant companies that are, you know, blue chip stocks and really just people that are, you know, have lived in California for a long time that don't agree with where they're currently at government wise and wanting to move here. And, you know, you bring up the, a fantastic point, right? What we've seen with, you know, I mean, in the show Yellowstone, it's all of a, it's kind of a drama situated around Kevin Costner is this landowner, the largest private landowner in Montana, other than the Yellowstone National Park. And so in this show, it's like, you know, constantly fighting between, um, you know, different businesses that want to build on the land and make offers and, um, and you know, Indian reservations and 
um, you know, people wanting to take land and then eminent domain um, from the federal government and saying, hey, no one should own this much land privately. It doesn't matter if it's a seven generation ranch that, you know, it's been passed down family to family for years. Mm -hmm. This should be broken up and, you know, they should be able to create an airport or, you know, whatever. Right. And the thing that's so crazy is we're seeing that right here in the middle of the hill country of Texas. That is centered around Austin. Oh, it's blowing up. Yeah. It's blowing up. And uh, this is a cool fact, actually. In 2014, my junior year of college, I was in San Marcos, which is, you know, right by Austin, Texas. Right. Just south of Austin, Texas. And eight of the 15 in the year 2014, it might have been 2013, I could stand corrected, but something around then, eight of the 15 fastest growing cities in the USA were in Texas. Right. And you know what that number one city was? What was it? San Marcos, Texas. Mm. Fastest growing city in the USA in the year 2014 or 13, my junior year. Why do you think that was? I think it's, uh, I, to be honest, money is such a motivator by people. Right. If, think about Manifest Destiny, the 13 colonies, people kind of, okay, Louisiana Purchase will go out and then, oh shit, there's a gold rush out in California. It's the San Francisco 49ers, right? Oh, yeah. So, uh, I think money's a big motivator. And, like, all you had all these people, Louisiana Purchase, and no shit, gold out in California. I'm headed that way because I know I can make money. And if I can't make physical money, I can at least create, create value for myself out there and my family and my loved ones. So, I think Texas, honestly, is uh, very, like, value-adding and it's a money business friendly state we still have regulations don't get it twisted but we're just not over the top like these kind of left-leaning states where they just are want to pin you down pin you down all the time oh yeah you see jamba juice just changed their headquarters i think it was a few years ago from uh california to like dallas wow and you have all these other companies going out uh Elon Musk. Yeah, Tesla. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot. And it's crazy because, you know, a lot of these hill country um, cities that sort of surround Austin and in that area, Fredericksburg, um, Fredericksburg yeah. and yeah. And it's, it's, you know, you start to wonder years, you know, maybe five, six years from now, um, and really, honestly, at this present time, is it even affordable to get your hands on any of that land? Well, let me ask you something. Do you think right now it would be a good time for you, let's say in the next few years, no more than five years, to kind of, let's say, buy some land, even if you don't know what you're going to do with it? If you're going to get something kind of halfway in between Houston and Austin or maybe in between Austin and San Antonio, it's 30 acres, it's going for like 120 k pretty good deal. I mean, are you doing that? If you don't even have plans <clears throat> of what to do with it? Yeah, so so I am. So so um like you know, my my dad and I have shared um, you know, an interest for for really years since I was a little kid. Um, you know, I grew up watching John Wayne movies and you know, a lot of stuff involving, you know, um the the old west, you know, and and you know, cowboy shows and really just kind of what I guess things were like years and years and years ago, you know. And so, um, you know, kind of admiring that and loving that, um, it's created a, a draw 
to having some land of our own. And so he and I have been looking, um, you know, for land, you know, in different parts, um, either towards San Antonio or towards Austin. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, you know, the land in between Houston and Austin mm-hmm. is really nice, like LaGrange area. Absolutely. Schulenburg, yeah. Yep. That's all nice stuff. Yeah, so we're actually, we've been looking at a piece of property that's um, right on the, the way to Schulenburg. It's it's right outside of Schulenburg, um, a town called Hallettsville. And uh, so, yeah. yeah, and so, um, you know, it's interesting, you know, you start to see a lot of these towns just blow up as far as cost for acreage and things like that. You know, I used to go a lot of times through Bastrop. And and areas Love like that, Bastrop, yeah. Man, and oh yeah. Surrounding areas of Bastrop. Mm-hmm. You know, you go when you're driving to Austin from Houston. You you'll hit Columbus, then Columbus, you go up yeah. to Lagrange, and then Lagrange to Bastrop, and everything kind of around there. I really like it. It's so good, and the thing is, is like, you know, to your point, am I, you know, is this is this the time to invest? And I think that. It's interesting. You look at you mentioned four hundred one ks. You mentioned stocks. At the end of the day, I you can almost guarantee yourself that that land is going to go up in value. Yeah. There's just not there. If you look at simple supply and demand, mm-hmm. there's less supply, which means the demand goes and up, demand, and right. then it the sense. it makes sense, right? So, ultimately, I think that a lot of young people. And, you know, middle-aged and even older folks, I think they should be investing in this land now. But think about, like, also on top of that is having something to give to your family when you pass, right? When it's your time to go sure. home yeah. to see God, man, and get torn up by him or, or loved by him, you know, whatever happens, potato, potato. But, like, uh, you're getting, uh, you're giving something back. To a future generation that is invaluable man it's it's something that like you i mean to your point i don't know that they're going to be able to go out and get realistically down the line land, i right. think yeah i think that this stuff is going to get to the point where it is so expensive that no one's going to really be able to afford it except for the you know extremely wealthy folks well, the top one percent Let's say you own land in a neighborhood. Okay, sure. well, I own, you know, 5,000 square feet. You know, I got 3,000 square feet of that is my house in a residential neighborhood and 2,000 square feet for my backyard. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about some land where you can really, like, kind of let out your inner John Wayne. Absolutely. Probably, you know, at least 20 acres, mm-hmm. right? Well, and, you know, we, we look at acreage and... Um, you know, what's really interesting to me is there are some people out there that they they could circle around and, and do a full circle around the land that they own, Cameron, and they couldn't cover all that distance in a day. Yeah. I mean, there's there are people, um, you know, I, I, I think one of the really interesting ones, so the largest private land ownership is actually from John Malone. Um, John Malone owns the most land in the United States at 2.2 million acres. Now, this isn't like feasible for the average person. I mean, no one's really going to have 2.2 million dollars, or I'm sorry, 2.2 million acres, um, which I don't even know what that would equate to uh, in value. (laughs) But but for perspective to those who are familiar um, with the King Ranch, 
which is one is one of the largest um, privately owned ranches in the country. Um, also known in the in the F one fifty trucks for the trim level, no and yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so the King Ranch is absolutely one of the largest privately owned ranches uh, in the United States. Just for perspective, this gentleman John Malone, um, who owns two point two million acres, King Ranch is point nine three million acres. So it is like it is easily a fraction yeah, of what this other guy owns. Eight hundred twenty-five thousand acres. That's more land than the state of Rhode Island. Yeah, it's it's bana- it's it's bananas, and it's in South Texas, guys. Like a lot of people don't realize, you know, King Ranch is is massive, and um, there was a conversation actually that was being had recently. There's a guy that's um, that I knew through um, my industry. And he and a group have a lease for hunting down in King Ranch. And it's just, it is crazy because they have so many expensive leases, cattle. They have a leather and luxury like luggage much, company. Cattle they have on King Ranch. I would guess probably <laughs> half a million. Oh, half a million. Way off, but 35,000 cattle. 35,000 cattle is insane. It is one of the largest ranches in the world today. And they also, King Ranch, they also own and maintain farming land in right. Florida. Yeah. Right near Lake Okeechobee. Yeah, it's crazy. And, it, and a lot of people realize, like, you know, with, with cattle, they use everything um, that they get from the animal. I think it's really important. Are you talking about Native Americans use that? Native Americans did, but also, um, you know, a lot of these privately held ranches are pretty big on uh, making sure that they use the entire animal and the reason for that is you know obviously they're going to sell the meat um which ends up going to your local hebs and the krogers and all these places that you shop on a daily basis Mm -hmm. um but the leather that goes into these f-150 trucks or goes into you know the king ranch um leather duffel bags or um you know any of those products that you might see through their website those are all uh, made with the leather of, of their um, cattle that they have. And so it's just really interesting to see that in this world full of um, you know, these giant companies that are trying to sell you a bill of goods, some of these are privately held, you know. And, and you know, so I just I thought that was worth mentioning. Mm. Like, yeah, King Grant. Um, hold on. What was I going to say? So... Another thing to jump in there and, and kind of mention, because I think it's just such an interesting fact, is that, um, you know, we had mentioned Texas and, and kind of where this comes into play. So the percentage of federal land ownership in Texas is actually one of the lowest. Um, it, it's at 1.8% of the entire state of Texas is federally owned. Federally? So that's yeah. meaning not the Texas government, but the USA government. Yeah. Yeah. So, so 1.8. 1. 1. I, I hate that. To me, that's still too much. Yeah, Man, but get your fucking hands off Texas. You it's it's cra- it's crazy. <laughs> you know, it's crazy. And you know, I know one of the comments that was made. Um, you know, when Cameron and I were kind of drawing up what we were going to talk about tonight and what we're passionate about here was mm-hmm. that, um, you know, what's the benefit of having a state that has a heavily uh, federally owned um, amount of land? And the, the answer to that is really like being federally owned um, kind of allows for differences in taxes 
um, increased jobs, government investments, and new roads and infrastructure. And it really kind of takes that cost out of the hands of the people. Um, they don't have to pay for those things. Um, so there are some benefits, and I think that uh, some of the states that obviously have ended up being uh, largely uh, federally owned, I think it's part of the reason that they've, um, they, they went in on doing that. Um, obviously, Cameron and I both agree that this is, this is not something that we want for the state of Texas. So. Mm. Well, something that I do like about federally owned land, I got to say, is uh, national parks. I love that. I trust the federal government to protect the absolute bliss and beauty of a Big Bend National Park in West Texas. Yeah, or Zion for National sure. Park in Utah. That's one thing. And another thing I like is, uh, like, you know, the Indian reservations. I think when the federal government, you know, put these Native Americans on reservations, they had good intentions. They're like, you know what? America is expanding. We're getting ginormous. We just bought the Louisiana Purchase. We just bought billions of acres. Yep. So... We're going to expand because we're our own country, Declaration of Independence. Oh, yeah. And guess what? Louisiana Purchase and Declaration of Independence, both the same guy, Thomas Jefferson. Man, TJ. Yeah, just get in there, TJ. Yeah. True patriot, right? There you go. And so you got got that, and I think they created these reservations with, like, good intentions. But what these reservations have, these Indian reservations have become— and like I, I don't know who to point the blame at here, but you create it with such good intentions. Let's 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 keep and document and record and let let it live on the rich culture of Native American history and all that. And then they turn into these places where in Oklahoma mm-hmm. you drive up to the Indian reservation yeah. to go to the casino. And you go to the Indian Reservation and you find out a lot of these Native Americans now, current modern day in 2021, are fucking alcoholics. And you're like, okay, this is what it's become, but this wasn't the intention. So then it goes to, oh, who's at blame here? And me, I'm way too much of an idiot to know, but it's something worth like looking into and looking yeah. at. Well, you know... In addition to kind of what you're saying there on, um, you know, the Native Americans, which obviously that's a huge interest for both of us um, and being able to talk about really just like the history that involves Native American culture and how it kind of collides with where Westernized culture has, has kind of it's made its draw. It's, it's so interesting because I feel like we skip over. nature with yeah. Native Americans versus like, Fucking just modern medicine and modern oh, yeah. shit foods and, you know, all these things that I deem to be bad with what America has brought. And now there's good things, too. You look at the Native Americans. They were savages who were not living cordially with each other. I mean, right. with Native Americans in America, not the Comanches, but other tribes we talked about earlier, were, were, can, were into cannibalism. And then the Comanches were into like, like brutally beating and killing babies and raping uh, women, and and they would uh, ride horseback a thousand miles just to track down one family to brutally murder them. I mean, these—if you really look back at the history of Native Americans in America, they were not 
That's a hundred percent. And, and, you know, kind of jumping in piggyback on that. I mean, when the West was young, I mean, this was, this was anybody's game, man. You know, it was, it was, you know, yeah. tribes versus other tribes. And I mean, yeah. it was holding down your area. I know we were sitting here a minute ago, curious about where Houston was, you know, with what the tribe would have been. And it was actually the Comanches. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which Comanche is notorious for exactly what you just described and, um, you know, being ready to go and, and um, get even with whoever that Wh- crossed Whoever them. faulted them. That's right. They were savages. So, you know, so obviously Cameron and I both have share a, a passion for Native American culture. And um, so I wanted to just uh, talk about something real quick. So um, kind of where the Native American culture uh, mixes with art, um, which is another passion, um, kind of brings up a topic of a gentleman named Greg Overton. And for a minute there, I just want to give a shout out to Greg. So Greg um, is extremely well known at this point in time. Um, He was actually mentioned on uh, Joe Rogan's podcast. And um, Joe Rogan in his his previous, and I think actually in his current um, location that he's got over in Austin now since he's moved his his office and location, Mm -hmm. um, he has a a giant uh, piece of art that was done by Greg Overton. And um, Mr. Greg is extremely talented. And um, both Cameron and I really like his artwork. Um, and what he does is he will paint these beautiful, beautiful pictures of these um, Indian chiefs. And um, so Greg had done a really beautiful piece um, called Black Hand. And uh, the chief, Black Hand, um, is just really an incredible uh, piece of art. And you walk into a room and it just, it takes your breath away because, because it just, it makes you, the presence of this guy, you can feel it and it's just through a painting. Um, And so Cameron actually had this painting and was the one who mentioned, um, you know, Greg Overton to me and the paintings and the art and everything. Um, And unfortunately, um, what was it, I guess a year, year and a half ago, Cameron, that this happened, but... Oh, no, the house? Yeah. No, it was, uh, shit, like, ten, nine months ago? My nine months ago, out. yeah. So Cameron's, um, Cameron's place burned down about nine months ago, and um, one of the things that unfortunately didn't make it in the fire was the painting of, of Blackhand. And so um, what was really cool um, is that you know, Cameron and I, uh, lived together, um, you know, after that, uh, for some time and, um, which I got to butt in and say, dude, thank you for letting me live with you. My house, <laughs> my house fucking burns down, man. My house burns down that night after, you know, I lose everything. I just go, I get hammered off, you know, fajitas and margaritas, you know, do that. And, and then you wake up the next day and it really hits you like, Oh yeah. snap. Like, all I have is a tank top and jeans and shoes, and I don't even have a place to live. Yeah. And I need everything from a toothbrush to socks to a, a coffee cup to a couch yep. to clothes. Like, you need everything again. So thank you for letting me live with you for three months, man. 100%, man. You're one of my best friends, and, uh, you know, that goes without saying, you know, they, they people t- say and give the shirt off your back and stuff, but, I mean, you know, they're best friends you'd actually do that for. So... Um, you know, it was my pleasure and I enjoyed every minute of it. And so, um, 
Yeah. So, so, but so, um, so yeah, I love this sentimental moment, dude. I'm feeling that. Um, uh, but so, so Cameron, you know, obviously the, the, the painting didn't make it in the fire. Uh, the frame, the beautiful frame though, that he had, uh, did make it. And, um, he was able to kind of salvage that and, uh, sand it down and stain it and make it look just absolutely fantastic. I mean, you wouldn't even really realize that it was the same uh, frame unless you knew. Um, but a beautiful uh, frame. So I reached out. Um, I wanted to do something special for Cameron. Um, like I said, you know, obviously he's one of my best friends, and I wanted to kind of pick him up, pick his spirits up, um, you know, after this horrible thing happened. And so I reached out to Greg Overton. And I told him what happened uh, with the fire. And unfortunately, um, you know, how disappointing and devastating it was to Cameron to lose that since it was something he was so excited about. Um, I just want to say that Greg Overton could have not responded to me in the message that he had, that I had sent to him. Um, but he did. And he reached back out and told me, that if I placed an order for a different painting, that he would include Blackhand for free so that Cameron can get that painting back. And I just thought that was the most generous thing for, for Greg to offer and do. And, um, you know, so I just want to give a huge shout out to Greg Overton for that. And, um, you know, that's the kind of thing that, you know, makes a story when you tell a painting, you know, talk about a painting anytime somebody walks in your house to be able to say that this guy was such a standout, um, you know, gentleman, an artist, everything in between. Um, I mean, what do you think, Cameron? It was pretty, pretty awesome for him to do that, right? Yeah, like, you know, I, I spent, what, like, it was like 185 bucks for this, uh, this really big painting of a Native American. He was of a Lakota tribe, which nowadays you might know because of the Dakota access pipeline up in the Dakotas, South Dakota, I think is what it's going through. The Lakota tribe now is more commonly referred to as the people of the Standing Rock, which you'll hear about. I think Kyrie Irving and the NBA is uh, somehow associated to them. But that was, the, that was the painting I had, and so Austin reaches out. Greg's like, that sucks. Like, let me get this guy another painting. And he does it, and because of that, Greg was like, well, why don't you get a free painting yourself for being such a stand-up guy for your friend whose house burns down? So now... Yeah, so so <laughs> I, I ended up getting one of these massive uh, paintings as well. And um, in mine was actually of um, Chief Washaki. And, um, and so both of us have these... I mean, I don't even know what the size is on this thing. Dude. They are uh, I mean, 30 by 40. They're 30 by 40. They're massive. Like, you're massive. These massive paintings, they just take up a wall. Um, but they're, they're incredibly um, captivating. And so Chief was shaky. You know, since, I, since Cameron was sharing a little bit of black blackhand, I'm going to share a little bit about Chief was shaky. So um, born in 1804 um, in, in passing... Um, I guess closer to the 1900 mark. He's perhaps one of the most famous of all time um, chiefs. And then, you know, especially from the Eastern Shoshan uh, headmen and leaders. I mean, he's one of the most well-known um, for his prowess in both as a warrior and a statesman. Um, the Shaky played a prominent role um, in a territorial 
for statehood development of Idaho, Montana, Utah, and Wyoming. And so he's kind of the pinnacle uh, chief when you think about, you know, Yellowstone and you think about Montana and, you know, Wyoming and some of these places that are just absolutely breathtaking. The mountains, the whitecaps in the mountains that you can see from a distance, the grizzlies that um, lived on that, that land, the wolves, the, you know, the buffalo, everything that lived out there, um, you know, is kind of the, just the, the pinnacle image um, of what I imagine it was like living off the land as a Native American. Yeah, the Shoshones who Chief Washaki was the leader of had land that stretched more than 44 million acres from around the Salt Lake City Valley area in Utah all the way up to Grand Teton National Park and to what is today known as Yellowstone National Park. So they had, so he roamed, he was the leader of the Shoshone tribe who covered over 44 million leaders and they, I mean 44 million acres and they selected him because uh, Chief Washaki, specifically him, loved battle. They said he loved battle, he never backed down, he always encouraged it to come Wow, on. that's crazy. And, uh, and yeah, it's crazy. We, um, it's so cool. We've, uh, you know, we've had so much time, especially getting ready and prepping for this this podcast specifically because, um, you know, this one shared a lot of different stuff that obviously we're interested in and some of the, you know, recent things in the past, I guess, nine months that have, have been exciting things to get jazzed about and nerd out about <laughs> and, um, and just kind of share some facts and especially anytime somebody comes in your house and You've got something uh, sort of unique on the wall. As powerful as yeah, that. as powerful. Um, so, uh, your you know Chief Washaki of the Shoshone tribe was buried with full military honors. Oh wow! I don't know if you know that in nineteen hundred, yeah, and that is a uh, full military honors a burial. That is a ceremony that no other Indian chief of any Native American tribe in American history had ever has ever received to this day. That's incredible. That's no, incredible. I, I uh, no, I, every time I look at it, especially in the room that it's in, you know, it makes me think a lot about um, about that time period and just what it would have been like to live in a different time period. I'm sure a lot of um, you know y'all definitely uh, can understand the the thought process of what if you actually lived in a different time period um, across from this this wonderful painting that I have is a um, another frame that has something really special in it, and it is the tale of two wolves. And so I'm going to share with you all about that, you know, a little bit about that story real briefly here. Um, but um, so, so the tale of two wolves, and basically what that looks like is this. Um, there was a, a grandfather and his grandson, and um, just to paint the picture, you know, it's nighttime. They're sitting down. They've got their teepees. They have a fire going. Typically, there's a lot of stories that were told around that setting. And so the grandfather was telling his grandson about the tale of two wolves. And uh, the grandfather is describing, you know, the first wolf is good, uh, is kind, is thoughtful, um, considerate. All of these things that define, um, you know, healthy and, and, and admirable 
uh, characteristics of somebody who um, would be perceived as good. And then he highlights a lot of characteristics, obviously, of a wolf that would be, um, you know, bad and obviously um, angry, um, you know, selfish, greedy, any of those different characteristics that you think uh, you could think of that would be bad. So he really kind of paints this picture between this good wolf and this bad wolf. And um, the grandson asks the, the grandfather, um, well, grandfather, you know, which, um, you know, which wolf uh, wins? And the grandfather um, looked at his grandson and said, whichever one you feed. Mm. So I think that, you know, there's so many things we can take away. Yeah, so many things we can take away from the Native American culture. And I think that what's so neat to me is they keep going back to the land and the animals. And They're so in tune with Mother Earth. So in tune. Yeah, and taking Native Americans back to specifically the Shoshone tribe, one of the most, uh, one of the most um, I guess, famous uh, Native Americans in American history was part of that Shoshone tribe. You know her, Sacagawea, who's infamous for working with Lewis and Clark post, uh, post her, uh, post the Louisiana Purchase. Oh, yeah. And, you know. And so, you, you know, reading about Sacagawea, she would go out and she was, like, digging up, she would even dig up uh, certain vegetables and fruits that mice had buried to feed her people. I mean, it's insane how how integrated they were with the land. The mindset was completely different, and it was a, a means to share, um, you know, share the land um, with the animals and everything that lived there, and and not take it over. And I think that's so different from the mindset of uh, Westernized culture today. Um, it's kind of like a you know, telling you know nature to move and get out of the way. I mean, yeah, as so we all, can build a Chipotle. Yeah, I mean, think about this: as metropolitan cities continue to build and build and grow, and you build warehouses and all this stuff, we're just taking down trees and habitats for you know the ecosystems and the environments that these animals lived at, and um, you know, what happens to those animals? You know, what happens to the deer and the, um, you know, wild pigs and the coyotes and the different things that lived in, you know, forests that are not so far away from the city mm -hmm. um, as we continue to push them out, where do they go? Mm -hmm. And the answer is, I have no idea. Yeah, they and, go to the national parks. They go to the places where they're protected by, you know. Yeah, but how know. close away is that, right? Like, we look at yeah. Waller and stuff down 290, as they continue to build down 290 and get closer and closer to Waller, you know, we're kind of chasing all of the wildlife, mm -hmm. you know, further towards, you know, like Brenham and areas like that. And, you know, will a lot of these animals survive? And, you know, I just think it's really interesting that we've kind of taken over like a cancer. Yeah, and the crazy thing is the Shoshone people, you know, the Standing Rock is their name now, but, you know, historically Shoshone people uh, Black Hills is the nature area surrounding uh, what's that monument in South Dakota and Custer with the president's faces on it uh, Rushmore Mount Rushmore so there around there is a national forest called Black Hills and Americans came in there and they started mining mm -hmm. and the Shoshone Native Americans were 
hardcore against do not mine here for minerals, no mineral extraction, because this is sacred land to us. And it's this weird thing of like, you know, what, who, who's right and who's wrong in this instance? Modern technology from mining has given us so much good and it's given us so much bad. But then you look at the Native Americans and you're like, well, would we still be living in teepees and not even have a home if we had never done this mineral extraction? So there's like this weird, weird kind of balancing act to think about. And then the question I would have is, is would that be better? Yeah. You know, it, it, does your two-story house, like, I don't know, man. You know, there's some things that, like, simplicity brings you that modern technology and things like that, um, you know, do we need it? <laughs> do you need to be able to jump on your phone or have your phone in front of you 24-7? I mean, not to get on a tangent, but... <sighs> I mean, we've got like 5G out now, and I mean, mm -hmm. who knows if that's good for your body or not? Probably, yeah. probably not. You Maybe, know? I don't know. But you start to think to yourself, like, the simplicity of, of living off the land, and, um, you know, it just, for me, I think it just seems like it's something that seems so natural that it has to be healthy. Yeah, because we're a part of nature. Yeah. And it's so easy to be a person today who lives in a, four bed, three bath house with three bed house with air conditioning and electricity to be like, yeah, we should have never extracted minerals and mined and done all these things and taken away from Native American culture. We never should have done that. Well, it's easy to say that, you know, from the comfort of your air conditioned room with your lights on via electricity. Uh, if you were Sacagawea in 1800, uh, or no, I'm sorry, Sacagawea in the year 2021, you might be like, hey man, <laughs> I'm living in the Idaho region right now, and guess what? It's fucking cold in the winter, and if I could maybe turn on a heater and have some electricity, it would be nice. So, again, like I think it always, it just comes down to a balancing act. I think right now we live with too much technology and not enough nature. Right. But you look at living in a pure naturistic kind of society, these Native Americans were not getting along whatsoever. They were killing each other. They were brutally murdering, murdering each other, and scalping. indulging, scalping heads, and and indulging in cannibalism. And they actually ran down the the population of buffalo in America so much. It's crazy. Yeah, they it's... relied so much off the buffalo for the. Uh, for their teepees and, and food and stuff like that. And they actually, you know, depopulated the number of buffalo by, by an immense margin. And uh, so if we had continued down that path, you know, where would we be? That That is such a sacred animal to America, I think, is the American buffalo. Absolutely. And, and I know that that's one that's been on the endangered list. Um, and his, um, they're trying to do everything that they can to make sure that it doesn't um, go in extinct. Um, this is, you know, this is a super uh, interesting topic. I know that Cameron and I both, like I said, have shared a lot of, um, you know, passion and interest for, and, um, you know, Cameron, can't thank you enough for having me on um, tonight to kind of talk about a lot of these things and, and to be your guest on this uh, podcast. And, um, you know, I appreciate you having me on, and uh, hopefully we can do it again soon. Yeah, I got one last question. Uh, what do you think is the purpose of, you know, this existence in life? 
and then I'll let you go. I gotta ask people that. The existence of what specifically? Of just your consciousness. The existence of, of you being a human being in a floating ball called Earth in the middle of space. And it doesn't have to be super detailed, but I just I love think that, people's brains. I think that one of the things that you can't get away from when at being asked that question is the word purpose. And um, I think everybody spends most of their lifetime trying to figure out what that is. You know, what is your purpose? Mm -hmm. Why are you here? You know, are you here to leave the world a little bit better place than it was when you got here? Mm -hmm. um, are you meant to um, be appreciative and just be grateful, show gratitude and love your life and the people that are in it and maybe share some kindness and light to some people that are living in darkness? I think at the end of the day, man, one of the things that um, I'd hang my hat on with that question is I think you're either uh, one of two people in this world. You're either going to be somebody who is going to fill someone's cup or take from it. And I think that the biggest question that we have to figure out and ask ourselves is which one are we? Mm. I think we're going to be both people at certain times, but more often than most times, we want to be the person who fills another person's cup. Couldn't agree more? Yeah. All right. Well, cool, man. I guess we'll uh, see you next time. Next time, brother. All right. All right.